If you would take your Bibles, please, and open to First John. First John, chapter four. Been looking at the uh, Epistle of First John for several weeks now, and what we've seen is that John, based on two foundational truths, the incarnation, that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have touched, and that God is light, he then builds a series of tests. Because false teachers have come in and are teaching false doctrine. And there are three tests that he gives. And they're not in the order that we would prefer, I think. Um, I think we would prefer that he start out with the doctrinal test, but that's actually the third test. The first is that of obedience. The second is that of love. And the third is that of doctrine. And he gives it to us three different times in this book. He builds, he he gives it to us first, and then he builds on it. We're now on the third level, if you wish, of his building on these tests. We saw last week uh, an expansion of the test of love in verses 7 through 12. And if you'd look, I'd like to read it and just review a bit. As we saw last week, by the way, he writes, Dear friends in the NIV, but it's actually beloved. Uh, So, beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We hear in these verses the phrase, love one another three times. In verse number seven, it's in the form of an exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another. In verse number 11, it is a statement of duty. We ought or we also ought to love one another. And finally, in verse number 12, it's sort of a hypothesis. If we love one another. What John seeks to do in this passage is to demonstrate the basis of our obligation to love one another. Why is it that Christians are supposed to love one another? Um, he has spoken about this earlier. Remember, he, does, he repeats himself and does different levels. But here he fleshes it out. And it's God has revealed himself in his Son, but in, in this passage here, he gives us three reasons. First of all, God is love in himself. Secondly, God has loved us in Christ. And thirdly, God continues to love in and through us. This is why we are to love one another. The key in this passage, in my opinion, and I, I could be wrong, is at the beginning of verse number 12. No one has ever seen God. And this sort of echoes what we hear in the beginning of the Gospel of John. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only begotten Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. But I find it really strange that John mentions this at this point in the letter. Without question, it ties in with verse number 20, which we'll be looking at in a few minutes. Um, If anyone says, I love God, but yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So no one has ever seen God. But I think that John is hinting at something else here. And that is, the unseen God who revealed himself in his son is now revealing himself in and through his people when they love one another. 
He is the invisible God, as Paul writes uh, at the end of 1 Timothy. Um, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Cannot see God, but the church itself is visible. We are to be the tangible and visible proof that God exists. And this happens when we love one another. Meaning, I think, that when we do not love one another as we should, we fail to be tangible evidence that God is love and of God's love. I will mention this at the, at the end of the sermon as well, but let me just hint at it here. We find ourselves at a critical point in the history of the church in this country, in which I, as the country is divided, so is the church. And not over theological issues, interestingly enough. Um, they may be mentioned, as one puts forward one's position, but it seems that politics has become the dividing line. And what I have noticed is that when either side castigates, chastises, corrects, rebukes the other side, I don't hear any love. I don't hear any grace. We are supposed to be brothers and sisters. We are called to be in unity, not uniformity. We don't have to agree with each other on everything, but we do have to love each other. We're told that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we are to love our enemies. Strangely enough, we don't seem to love our brothers and sisters because they disagree with us on certain matters. It would be a lot easier if we all agreed, if we all saw eye to eye on everything. But that's not the way it is, and we are still called to love one another. I mentioned to someone after the sermon last week that in wartime it's easier to kill the enemy when you dehumanize them. Uh, you, you give them names. You don't. You, know, you make them less than human, and it's easier to kill them. Um, I think it's easier for us not to love our brothers and sisters when we forget that they are our brothers and sisters. In verse number 12, John tells us that God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. These two thoughts are what he, dis he unfolds in the next two paragraphs. God lives in us, the indwelling of God, and secondly, his love is made complete. And what we find in these next two paragraphs is a combination. And that's what happens as he gets closer and closer to the end of the book. It's not just, okay, here's the obedience test. Here's the love test. Here's the doctrinal test. Suddenly we find that they begin to weave together, which makes sense. You, know, you can't just put these in discrete categories and not let them touch each other. He begins to weave them together. And so here we find a mixing of the doctrinal test which focuses on the incarnation, and then the social test, the, the test of love. Look, if you would, at verses 13 through 16. We know that we live in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. 
Now, in verse number 12, uh, John said, God lives in us. Sort of a singular, like a one, you know, one direction, God lives in us. But then, in this passage, it's reciprocal that God lives in us and we in him. Verse 13, we know that we live in him and he in us. Verse 15, God lives in him and he in God. Verse 16, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. And in each of these cases, for this reciprocal relationship, evidence is given. How do I know that I live in God and God lives in me? Verse 13, because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 15, if we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And thirdly, whoever lives in love. These last two tests, I think, are developments of the first one. It is by the Spirit that we come to confess that Jesus is God. It is by the same Spirit that we are enabled to love. That we can love one another. A human being apart from God is fallen and unredeemed and both blind to the truth that Jesus is God and is selfish, therefore not loving of others. It is only by the grace of God through his spirit. The spirit who is the spirit of truth and whose first fruit, the fruit of the spirit, is love. It is only by the spirit that we can come to believe in Jesus and love others. By the way, I'm sure you would not make this mistake, but we should not think that if we believe and if we love, then the Spirit will come and live in us. It's quite the reverse. It is because the Spirit lives in us. He dwells in us that we believe and we love. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father is his, his Son to be the Savior of the world. It'd be very tempting to imagine that the Spirit living within us is purely a subjective thing. It's a feeling sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling that it's a subjective experience that we experience in isolation. I think there is that aspect of the spirit living within us, but there's something else. There's this objective truth. The spirit confirms the reality in human history that Jesus came into the world. You see this because he begins the verse, we have seen which stands in contrast to verse number 12, no one has ever seen. But we, John and the apostles, have seen the Son whom the Father sent. You will notice in verses 13 and 14, we have the triune God, the Spirit given by the Father, the Father, and then the Son who is sent by the Father. There's something else interesting that happens here. There are two witnesses to the Incarnation. First of all, verse 13, the Spirit... It is the Spirit who tells us that God has sent his Son. And secondly, the apostles. We have two witnesses. The internal, subjective witness of the Spirit, that Jesus is God. It came into the world. But then we also have the objective witness of the apostles. This recalls something, again, from the Gospel of John. The night before Jesus died, John 15. When the Counselor comes, that's the Spirit whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. So there's the inner witness. The Spirit will testify. Next verse. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And what are they testifying to? That God the Father has sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. 
Again, recalling the Gospel of John, what Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This leads us to verse number 15, here in 1 John 4. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. Simply put, if one believes the Gospel, God lives in him and he in God. Just a side note, and I sort of chastised the NIV last week, be a little less brutal. The NIV says acknowledges, where other translations have confesses, and I think it is confess, and it ties in with what Paul wrote to the Romans. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. How is it that we can confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, the witness of Scripture is necessary, but also the witness of the Spirit, He who lives within us. Verse 16. And and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in Him. The historical mission of Jesus coming into the world, is as much evidence of God's love as it is evidence of the Son's deity. We tend to want to defend the deity of Christ. He is God. Yeah, that's important. But let's not forget, his coming into the world is evidence, it is proof of God's love for his creation. And so here John does what I was saying earlier, that he weaves together. We have the test of belief, believe that Jesus has come into the world, and the test of love, that he is evidence of God's love. And this is made possible because Jesus came into the world and because of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, our minds are dark, our hearts are cold, we cannot see, we cannot feel, if you wish. But through the Spirit... Our minds are enlightened to see the reality of who Jesus is, but also our hearts are warmed to love God and to love one another. Now in verses 17 through 21, John returns to the matter of complete, or as some translations have it, perfect love. In either case, I think the focus is on a developing and a maturing love. It's not like you become a Christian and bam, you've got perfect love. But it is something that is in the process of growing. And the two marks of such love for God are seen in confidence, the confidence we have before God, and secondly, our love for each other. Verse 17. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in the world we are like him. In this way, in in what way? What is John talking about? What has he just written? Whoever lives in God, or whoever lives in love, lives in God and God in him. It's a reciprocal thing. God is in us and we, by the Spirit, are in God. Simply put, we have the life of God in us. The evidence of this reality is that we love God and that we love one another. 
The key word here is confidence. It's a word that's come up earlier in our studies. In chapter 2, verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, it's the second coming, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. But also in chapter 3, about our confidence not only in the future when Jesus returns, but right now in prayer. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. Here, John is referring to confidence at the second coming, but he calls it the day of judgment. On that day of judgment, we will have confidence because we will be like him. That is, we are the children of God. Again, going back to chapter 3, verse 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. As a result, when the day of judgment comes, we should not fear. It's a thought that's carried over to verse number 18. Look at verse number 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect or complete in love. What John said in verse number 17, he now states in verse 18, but in a different way, one might even say in a negative way. Love that gives us confidence is the same love that banishes fear. And here John tells us some important truths about love and fear, that in love there is no room for fear. Um, We can love God and have reverence for God at the same time, but we cannot approach God in love and run away from God in fear at the same time. Romans 8, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Because we are sons, we love our Father, our Father loves us. We are not to be afraid of punishment, of his judgment that happens when he returns. One might think that the only thing that John is thinking about here is that we're afraid of being punished. I think that's part of it. But interestingly enough, I would argue that fear, in fact, may be part of the punishment. One writer put it this way, fear has in itself something of the nature of punishment. When we are afraid of the coming judgment, that's already part of the judgment. That's already part of the punishment has begun because of the fear that we have within us. But as children of God, we should not fear the coming judgment. We might be afraid of a lot of other things, which we shouldn't be, but God forgive us, we are. But we should not fear when the Lord returns because we will not be punished, we will not be judged because of what Jesus has done for us. Verse 19, a rather short verse, but very powerful We love because he first loved us. So we're not to be afraid of God. He loved us first. If we started this whole thing, then yeah, we might get nervous because maybe I'm not loving God the way I should. Maybe my love is not complete. It's not perfect. It's still in process. It's not a problem. God loved us first. We love him because he loved us first.
We are not to fear. We are to love. Our love is a response to his initiative. He began this process. Didn't John say this earlier? Look at verse number 10. Same chapter, 1 John 4. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We can only love because God has loved us and sent his son and his spirit to live in us. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Here he comes at the matter from an entirely different direction. What we've seen thus far is if we are the children of God, we love God because he first loved us. And we are to love one another. Because God is love, because God has loved us in Christ, because God continues to love in and through us. But if someone says, I love God, but in fact hates his brother, This is simply not possible. Such a person who says this is a liar. It's the second time, by the way, in the book that that John has referred to someone as a liar. Actually, I think it's the third time. But earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is the obedience test. If you say, yes, I know God, but I'm not going to do anything he says, then you are a liar. Here the test is not obedience, per se, but that of love. If you do not love a fellow believer, you cannot love God. And I don't think John is speaking of the impossibility of this. It's rather the implausibility of it. If you don't love your fellow Christians, this is proof that in fact you do not love God. That should knock us to our knees, shouldn't it? If, in fact, we do not love our fellow brothers and sisters, then the reality is we don't love God. John puts this assertion in the light of the one you have seen, your brother, and the one you have not seen, which goes back to what we saw in verse number 12. John Calvin wrote this, It is a false boast when anyone says he loves God, but neglects his image, which is before his eyes. Your fellow human beings are made in the image of God. They bear the image of God. And if you say, oh, I love God, but you hate the image, the one who bears his image, then you are, in fact, a liar. Hatred against another person is hatred against God. The absence of love for someone else is evidence of an absence of love for God. Several weeks ago, I read from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Hatred is murder. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, like Cain. We cannot not love those who are made in God's image and then claim that we love God. I remember hearing someone say many, many years ago, I love the Lord, it's people I can't stand. Well, that doesn't work. The evidence that you love God 
I mean, do you ever ask yourself, do I love God? Well, the evidence is that you love your brothers and sisters. Verse 21. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is now the proposition put in a positive form and in a command. You maybe notice that John's repeating himself. I've told you that from the beginning, that he keeps going around as he builds this upward spiral. In chapter 3, this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded. If we claim to love God, then we must give evidence of this by loving our brothers and sisters. Here we see the combination of obedience and love. Okay, We've been given a command. Are we going to obey? That's the first test. The second test is that of love. But the doctrinal test is not left out. In fact, we believe by the Spirit that God has sent his Son. In the first part of our text, the issue is that of testimony. The testimony of the Spirit who testifies, the testimony of the apostles. Their testimony is that Jesus Christ is God. If someone denies this, if they deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, then they rob God the Father of his glory, of his love. You see, if Jesus is not God, then God did not send his Son. The Father did not send his Son. And that means there's no evidence of God's love whatsoever. The coming of Jesus into the world is proof positive that God loves us. But if you say Jesus was not divine, he's not God, then in fact, God is not love. There's no evidence of it. And if God is not love, then he did not love us, and so we would love him in return. It all falls apart. The false teachers, I think, uh, imagined that they in fact were sort of lifting Jesus up by saying, well, he's just really a man, but the spirit came on him and he did what he did and then the spirit left him. But John's like, no. The Father sent the Son. We are witnesses of that fact. And if you fail to acknowledge that, then love goes out the window. Because the coming of Jesus is proof positive of God's love. We need to recognize that the ability to believe, the ability to love comes from the Spirit. And the Spirit was sent by the Son. God sends the Son. And when he returns, the Father and the Son send the Spirit who lives in us. And it is because of him that we can love one another. But I want to end where I began earlier in the sermon. The mark of the church is to be that we love one another. And frankly, I would say that this is missing in the American church. I don't know that the American church has ever been marked by love. There are many things that the American church has done, built big buildings and have mega churches and have sent out tons of missionaries and done all these things. But I don't know if you would ask the average person or the average church member, what is the number one characteristic of your church or of the church at large? I don't think love comes to mind. I think we're too busy being individualistic, doing our own thing. We view the Christian faith as something that can benefit me. 
something that God can do for me. And the fact that we are not marked by love, I think, is now being revealed publicly in the current political situation. I think all sides, I mean, in the words of Shakespeare, pox on all your houses. Everybody has dropped the ball here. There is no love. And the church has somehow been caught up in the divisions marking our country, taking sides on each issue. And the fact that we are to love each other, we've completely forgotten. And the almost total absence of grace in dealing with each other or describing each other dishonors Christ. It dishonors the Father. It dishonors the Spirit. We don't have to agree with one another. Okay? But we do have to love each other. And if we can love our enemies, as I said earlier, can we not love one another? I think we're all guilty of this. I find myself guilty of this as well. Suddenly being so distracted by various issues and forgetting what is the evidence that God exists. We are the tangible, the concrete, visible evidence that God is love. But are we showing that? God help us. God forgive us. By his grace, may we love one another as we should. Let's pray together. Our Father, when we think about it, we should be stunned that you love us. But somehow we've just taken it for granted. Well, yeah, of course, that's what God does. He loves And we've lost sight of your love in sending your son. Yes, we know that you sent him and he died for our sins so that we will be saved, have eternal life. But the fact that because of your love you sent him and because of the life we have, we are now to love one another seems to have been forgotten. If we would be brutally honest, there are many who call themselves Christians that frankly are unlovable. It seems that way. But we were unlovable and you loved us and sent your son. When we hated you, you sent your son. by your Spirit who lives within us, may we love one another as we should. And in doing so, give evidence of your love in a tangible, visible, concrete way so that the world will come to see that you, in fact, do exist and that you are love. You have demonstrated your love by sending your Son. Forgive us for our failure to love our brothers and sisters. 
And as your spirit does his work in our hearts, may he remedy this. May we, in fact, learn, may we grow to love as we should. I thank you for bringing us together this day to worship you. The beginning of a new week. We thank you for your faithfulness in the past week and look to you to be faithful to us, to stand by us in the coming week. We thank you once again for giving Dan another year that he is with us. We pray for the Delarosa family in this time of grief. May they have a sense of your presence among them. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.